This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. <laughs> Welcome to the show, my friends. Three hours of ideas, tools, everything you need to grow healthier, happier lives. The inside scoop on most of the major stories. Uh, we're going to bring you the experts, the people that are in the know. Today, uh, poor poor Donald. Everybody's beating up Donald Trump. Yes! Apparently, Iowa, the Des Moines um, newspaper, the biggest newspaper in Des Moines, is going to um, is basically telling him to get out of that race. Donald, you're you're a feckless blowhard, <laughs> is what they're saying. See, this is what happens when you mess with veterans, and you mess with John McCain, and you you call him, you know, you make fun of a war hero. You're just in trouble. So everyone's piling up on Donald Trump. And again, interestingly, uh, you know, you, you, you can't be that rude. We live in a society where you have to think about what you say. I learned that as a very young kid. Think before you speak, Matt. My principal taught me that. You got that, you know, after speaking out of turn. Matt, you got to think before you speak. But somebody apparently has never told Donald Trump that. So now everybody's on him. GOP, everybody's getting their their jabs in, which, you know what? Good. We're learning. One candidate as, at a time. So that's going on with Donald. Interesting stuff just as I think about uh, um, my own life. And I think, man, what are my kids learning as they watch the Donald do his magic are my kids even are are they learning? Is this a good teaching moment for my family? Should I should I be trying to teach a lesson via Donald Trump? It's interesting. Even uh Rush Limbaugh apparently is now making more news because Rush's entire show pretty much I guess was about we need to learn. This is an important moment. When have you ever seen so much somebody somebody so strongly push back on and just speak his mind? It's such an interesting race this time. Donald is willing to say everything he thinks, and then other candidates are unwilling to say anything. Isn't this crazy? Anyway, does it matter to you yet? Are you even in the race yet? You better be. Come on. We've got some really fantastic and interesting debates that will be coming up in a few weeks. Are you interested in that? I think for a lot of people, they're just flat out burned out. They're burned out on the idea that, man, this is the race already. And so, okay, it's fun. It's fun to watch Donald go in and stir the pot a bit. But, man, what's going to happen in what's going to happen in six months, eight months? Is anybody going to actually go against Hillary? Is there going to be a race here? Anyway, interesting, interesting stuff. And Donald, at least he's done, has made it interesting. He's also ticked off pretty much every constituency. <laughs> I just think it's crazy. Crazy how we work this. Hey, but we got great news. Kathy Aiken is back. She's back in black yes. and red. And Welcome red. back. Thank you made you. it back. How'd I your trip it go? It was, it was wonderful. Uh, 
it was incredibly oh, humbling, I guess, to kind of retrace some of the steps of the Mormon pioneers. And to, here we are in 78-degree weather, nice, cool breeze, and we had lunch and all kinds of snacks. Oh, that's and, cool. and And you wonder how these people did it. I mean, they With did. blizzard conditions, no food. Uh, it was interesting. A woman gave me this small sack of flour. Before I left, it was four ounces yeah. is what they had per day. They would mix it with water. These pioneers would eat four ounces of of gruel, f- f- gruel, flour, right. and water. Right, and that was their. That's what kept. That's all they had. And so here we are, like I say, having a nice lunch, all these kinds of snacks, and nice shoes, nice clothing, and it was hard. Yeah, fifteen miles. It was hard, and I thought, wow, if that was hard for us, I can't. I can't even imagine how they did it. I cannot imagine. What a neat thing! And for the kids, because you took about a hundred kids. Hundred kids. Yeah, it was wonderful to see because we put them in families, uh-huh. little families, and each family got along so well. They worked hard. Because this is BLM property, so yeah. you have to you have to stay on the trail. Yeah. And it rained heavily the night before, and so there were several areas where you know the boys would take off their shoes and socks and have to push everybody through the, this muddy and water little, uh, yeah. little uh, parts of the trail, and because you couldn't go off. And they just all worked so well together. And it, I walked with a girl who said, "This has changed my life." I said, "Really? Tell me, tell me why you say that." And she said. I didn't want to come. My mom made me go, and I'm so glad I came. She said, I've been in a dark spot in my life the last two months, but to see wow. this and what the pioneers have gone through, she said, it's changed my life forever. Isn't I said, that that's cool? why we do it. That's, that's what, why we do it. That's exactly why you do it. And, yeah. and, and so I'm sure over time we'll hear the stories because yeah. you had to – I'm sure you've you had to push the handcart right and up hills, there's called down hills they had a, a segment called the women's pole yeah. where they had to you know go up uh, difficult areas and uh, rocky ridge where it took us Matt I think I I'm guessing cuz I don't recall to be honest with you I don't know where it stopped and where it ended but I think <laughs> it took us blur. about 30 minutes yeah it took oh. the pioneers 27 hours to get up this rocky embankment and you think oh my goodness I don't know how they did it I don't know how Isn't they did that it. Amazing. And so many monuments are uh, along the way showing how many people died here, what they went through, and it was it was really a wonderful experience. Wow. Wow. Great experience. Yeah, great. And it's great to have you back. Thank you. Because now you got to do the headlines. And here we go. Ohio Governor John Kasich is scheduled to announce today he's running for president, the 16th Republican, to enter the race. Kasich was chairman of the House Budget Committee and successfully balanced the federal budget during Bill Clinton's presidency. Kasich's late entry may be an issue since polls show he has only support of 2% of Republicans at this stage of the race. Iowa's top newspaper is calling on Donald Trump to quit his run for president. This after Trump's controversial comments about John McCain's time as a POW during the Vietnam War. The Des Moines Register said Trump is polluting the political waters and keeping qualified candidates from getting their message out. Fellow GOP presidential candidate Lindsey Graham said Trump should not be president. You shouldn't be our commander-in-chief because you don't know our military. John McCain and everybody like him is an American hero. One national poll has Trump ahead 11 points in the GOP race. However, that was before his comments about McCain. Trump has a campaign event this morning in South Carolina. FBI agents searched a Tennessee apartment yesterday trying to determine whether or not two acquaintances of Chattanooga shooter Muhammad Abdulaziz knew he had plans to carry out the deadly attack. The 24-year-old opened fire at a military recruiting station and Navy and Marine Reserve Center last week, killing four Marines and a sailor. Officials say they want to talk to 
everyone they can who knew the shooter as the investigation continues. Meanwhile, the U.S. military has reportedly directed recruiting centers across the country to step up security measures, and six states have ordered their guardsmen at National Guard recruitment centers to be armed. Extreme heat across the southern plains to the east coast will impact millions today. The dangerous temperatures have caused power outages and travel delays. More than 20,000 people lost power in parts of New York City yesterday, and power lines in Brooklyn caught fire, most likely most likely due to a surge in demand for electricity. 39-year-old American Zach Johnson won the British Open in a four-hole playoff yesterday. Johnson rolled in a 30-foot putt on the 18th hole. That was a birdie in regulation to close with a six-under par 66. The key for the week is patience and perseverance, um, without question. And I think in the playoff in particular, you know, it was, it was truly about just making the best of opportunities. Yesterday's win was Johnson's second major title to go along with his win at the Masters in 2007. And Matt McFanning, the yeah, surfer who was attacked by a shark, that was crazy. He's calling one of his competitors a superhero. Fanning was competing against Julian Wilson in South Africa when a great white tried pulling Fanning underwater by his foot rope. That's when he yelled at Wilson to get into shore, but Wilson instead swam towards Manning, hoping to help him. Wilson told reporters he thought once he got to Fanning, he'd be swimming down under to find him. Instead, both were saved by rescue teams on jet skis. That was really a live (laughs) video. I'm sure you were. I didn't see it live. No, we talked about it. We, we We just saw the video of it, but... I didn't know a guy was swimming towards him. That's what he said. He was what yelling at him to get stud. out of here, and he came towards him trying to help. And uh, I mean, not to be rude, but if you guys were going down with a shark. <laughs> You're going in. I'd pretty much walk on water and get out of there. I would I be out of there. I think that would be your first instinct, Can you for imagine? sure. I can't imagine. Swim towards the shark? What was amazing is his reaction to punch the shark. Yeah. You know, Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that was. It was crazy. And they, they said, you know, I was listening to another report about that's what you do. You just you punch the shark, except there's the reality that when you're fighting a shark, you just do whatever <laughs> whatever you can. <laughs> well, you'd be swimming away, I would you think, got. trying well, to get away. And, and then all the splashing would probably be worse, I'm guessing. Yeah, you would think. But I guess, too, they were saying the waves, because he kind of, luckily, there was the waves were hitting right then. So that would – the shark, I guess, naturally they don't want to be pulled toward the shore. Right. So they're actually going to – so the wave itself probably pushed or made the shark swim away. Yeah. But – Well, oh. it was interesting. Well, there's been just so many shark attacks in the I United know. States. And I heard one man saying those were like six-foot six sharks, those that we yeah. were talking about in North Carolina. Uh, but this one was a great white. I mean that's a whole different That's, a, that's a different ballgame. Yeah. But I think it has something to do with Shark Week. I think during Shark Week, they pay the sharks to come more <laughs> closer to the land just so that everybody can experience But I also heard it. that during Shark Week, you know, how they throw out the chum to get yeah. the sharks, uh-huh. that that gets them, pulls them in, which, you know, yeah. come on. By the way, chumming is the best way to catch yeah. anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's also illegal. But when we would – we'd go deep sea fishing and my family would get sick. And when they were all sick, oh. fish on, the fish would be hitting like crazy. So we loved it when everyone got sick. We're just like direct. Were you one of them, or no? You, you no, because I was fishing. taking advantage. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't get too sick on the boat, but my sister sure did. Oh. And we're, we're like, no, go to the go to the rail, go to the rail. And then all of a sudden, fish on. Oh, it's beautiful. Gross. That's yeah, not, good. Not, not good when people are good. eating breakfast right now. <laughs> no, no, sorry for those of you eating breakfast. We're just trying to give you a little fish update. Good job, Kathy. Great to have you back. Hey, uh, we're going to be talking now with Dr. David Finkelor. We're going to take a break, come back, and and talk with him about. What may be uh, kind of a, a, a silent, 
A silent terror for our children. Did you know that four in ten kids and teenagers in the United States are exposed to violence or abuse each year? Forty percent of our children and our teenagers are exposed to violence in their homes and in their lives. We'll be talking with Dr. David Finkelor, who's been studying the issue and has uh, some, some interesting research and some help for how we could uh, make sure we take better care of our children and, uh, and make sure they don't have to experience such violence in their lives. We'll take a break. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Today we got an interesting guest uh, to talk about some research he's been doing um, that basically shows us that nearly four out of every ten kids and teens in the United States were exposed to violence or abuse over the previous year. And uh, we want to talk about it, figure out what is going on, why are our children uh, being exposed to such violence, how, where, and and just learn what we can do to help make their lives healthier and um, safer, happier. Joining us today is Dr. David Finkelor. He's the director of the of Crimes Against Children Research Center, the co-director of the Family Research Laboratory, and a professor of sociology at the University of New Hampshire. Dr. Finkelor, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you for inviting me on. It's uh, It really is. It's like It's amazing to me that four in ten of our kids are so exposed to violence and abuse. What? I mean, is that... Well, children children are the most victimized and violence-exposed segment of the population, um, and they, they experience more crime uh, than any other segment of the population as well, including property crime. Um, there are a number of reasons for this. Um, they have relatively little control over who they associate with. They tend on average to be smaller and weaker and less experienced. Um, and um, and they, they, uh, the, the norms and standards for protecting them, the institutions we have like courts and police, don't operate in their world to the same extent that it does in the adult world. Um, you know, think about adults. They get to travel around in cars and work in offices or restricted access uh, facilities. Children, you know, have to get around on the streets or on public transportation. And, Mm. you know, their work environment in schools, they have relatively little protection about who they associate with. So they experience a a lot of um, violence uh, and property crime at the hand of other peers, at the hands of adult family members. Um, really, they're, they're being attacked on all fronts because it's not just at home, right? It could be bullying at school. It could be... In the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, the good news is that there have been some declines good. in this exposure uh, over the last 20 years. So it's, you know, it well, is... It is Appallingly high, but we're making some progress on it. What what are what are some of your findings uh, of, about the children? Is, so four in ten children 
experienced some abuse or violence in their in the previous yeah. year. I mean, I emphasize, you know, it, there's a there's a big range, of course, you know. Um, people tend to think about a lot of peer assaults as, oh, you know, well, that's just kids being kids. I yeah. like to point out, though, that, you know, if, uh, you know, if I said that, uh, you know, 25% of, of adults uh, were assaulted uh, in, their, in their work environment or on their way to work every year, I mean, people would regard that as uh, yeah. really uh, just uh, appallingly dangerous. Um, but somehow we, we, we tend to look at the stuff when, it, when it's happening uh, between young people as somehow just being kids' stuff. And, but it does really take a toll on kids. In fact, um, some of the research, recent research suggests that uh, a peer victimization is every bit as impactful as uh, uh, um, you know, child maltreatment in the family mm. and has the same kind of lasting effects we see. Recent research shows, for example, that young people who are exposed to violence early in life and the more violence they're exposed to, the more likely they are to suffer health effects really throughout their lifespan, including, you know, heart disease, uh, diabetes, more likely to um, uh, have problems with drugs and alcohol. Hmm. So it's it's a very uh, potent predictor of later difficulties. But but you are saying that uh, in many of the categories, it is getting a little better over the last few years? Yes. Um, what specifically yeah. do you see getting better? Well, all forms of violence, all forms of, of juvenile crime and delinquency, including property crime, all forms of uh, bullying and peer victimization, sex crimes, um, they've all come down. Um, criminologists and uh, uh, have been a bit hard-pressed to uh, account for exactly what's going on. Mm. Um, my own view is that uh, some of the programs and prevention efforts that we've been making have been paying off. Uh, you know, we have school resource officers, we have bullying prevention programs, we have uh, home visitation programs to prevent child maltreatment. So I, I think those have been likely successful to some degree. Hmm. Um, we've had other uh, broad efforts uh, to improve the situation of, of children. We've gotten lead out of, that, which is a toxin that's associated with delinquency and crime out of the environment. Uh, we're, you know, using psychiatric medications to treat kids who have aggressive uh, problems. Um, we, um, um, you know, so there, but, you know, it's hard to know what exactly the smoking wand is. Uh, right. But it, it's likely some of these things that I'm talking about. And yet, and and even with all of that, those improvements, we're still at four in 10 kids yes, we are. being yeah. exposed. So um, I guess that's one of the things that that we we really ought to, I guess, start trying to figure out as parents. I mean, are there are there things parents can do? And um, we can carry this. We'll, we'll take a break in a few minutes. But are there things parents should be doing to make sure that 
they're minimizing this violence. And, and is yeah. this actual violence or is this just seeing violence? We're seeing it on no. television. This is actual no, violence. No, no, it doesn't have to do with seeing. This is, we're not talking about seeing violence on television. Um, uh, we're talking about kids who uh, are being hit, uh, beaten up. Um, the, 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 the statistic that I emphasize is the, the 10%, because I think this is the represent about 10% of, the, of the, this population of, of um, children experience an assault that results in an injury. Mm. That would be, you know, uh, something bleeding or uh, a bruise that lasts till the next day. So, you know, that's those Seriously. are relatively serious forms of of assault. Uh, about ten percent experience an assault. And this does not include spanking at the hands of um, you know a, a parent or a caregiver. Mm. I mean, that's um, just that ten percent yeah. of our children experience a. a an assault, a violent event that leaves some injury. Yeah. I mean, let's get back. I do think talking about what we what we need to do, that that's very important. And, you know, I think a lot of the uh, prevention effort needs to be focused on the family and on school. Yeah. Um, and the family, uh, first thing is that, uh, parents need to restrain their own use of violence uh, in their relationships with their partners and their relationships with their kids. Um, I mean, hit, it, the, the research clearly shows that uh, kids who are hit in any way, including spanked, uh, are more likely to show aggressive behavior towards others um, because, in part, they l- are learning that... Uh, that hitting is something that you do when you're trying to change other people's behavior. Yeah, um, that's how you create your change. So, I mean, clearly um, emphasizing nonviolent solutions to problems, uh, not encouraging kids to hit other kids even when they're being attacked. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to, to get help, to move away from situations, but... but uh, not to strike back. This is important. We're talking, uh, but uh, also to teach them to to identify situations where that are dangerous and risky, where you know they they might be getting involved with somebody who would who is be aggressive towards. Yeah, them. we're speaking with Dr. David Finkelor, um, who is he's a director of the Crimes Against Children Research Center, and he's giving us some insight in just some of the latest research on violence and our children. Ten percent, roughly, of our children are going to um, are going to actually have a physical uh, uh, injury because of violence that they experience in their in their life. Um, we'll be right back. We're going to continue this discussion, but find out what we as parents could be doing, how how we could help our kids, our our, our children, and their friends. Even maybe, how do we improve this condition? And by the way, it's getting better, yet still not acceptable. We'll take a break. More after this break with Dr. David Finkelor.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Dr. David Finkler. He's the director of the Crimes Against Children Research Center, co-director of the Family Research Laboratory, and professor of sociology at the University of New Hampshire. He's been studying the problems of child victimization, child maltreatment, and family violence since 1977, and we're honored to have him here to help us understand a little bit more about violence and uh, our children. Welcome back, David, to the show. Are you there, David? Very interesting conversation so far. Yeah, I love, love what you're teaching us. And you were before the break, you were teaching us what we should be doing as parents. First and foremost, I guess, doing what we can to remove and restrain our own use of violence or hitting um, our, our children. And, and you made a really interesting point, even about spanking. But the research, I guess, you're saying shows that parents that spank their kids still create kids that hit other kids unfortunately it's true the the uh and one of the reasons that people spank most frequently is when kids are aggressive either to their parents or to their siblings but um it seems to increase the aggressive behavior of of the kids who get spanked i mean it stops it in the short term but compared to kids who are disciplined with non-violent techniques the kids who are spanked tend to be more aggressive. What uh, what what techniques have you found are you know are are healthy nonviolent techniques? Just so we have some in mind. Well, I mean, I mean the most important thing is for parents to um, strongly express their disapproval of the behavior. Uh, you know, a raised voice. Uh, through the the coming into the situation, um, uh, sanctioning it, Uh uh, uh, you know, taking away some privilege or removing the child from something in the situation, uh, you know, timeouts. Um, Important thing is reminding kids um, before they get into situations about um, not using aggressive behavior Hmm. Um, noticing when um, things are heating up and um, getting kids to to cool down uh, before things reach the point of aggression, teaching kids how to de-escalate, how to um, remove themselves from situations, and also how to calm themselves down. This is very important. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, those are those are. Those are, I mean, you just, you kept, you kept going with the list. It's, it really is, it's, there are a lot of other options. So many of us just, we end up reacting, it seems like. We react, when we see them being, you know, violent or aggressive, we end up in kind of reacting and then we become aggressive and violent, but we, we need to know there's other options. Yeah, exactly. Then there's also the school environment. Um, I mean, we're getting more and more programs um, put in place in schools, but a lot of schools still don't have it. Uh, parents, I think, should uh, talk to school administrators uh, and request those kinds of programmings for children of all ages to help them um, re- resolve conflicts nonviolently, to improve social relations among kids. Some of these programs are called social-emotional learning uh, programs, and, and they teach... Uh, kids 
um, how to solve, how to resolve conflicts, uh, how to extricate themselves from dangerous situations, uh, how to cooperate better, um, hmm. and are, are, are very useful uh, skills, uh, not just for preventing violence, but for coping in a, in a lot of stressful situations. Um, they also establish norms um, against bullying, against uh, isolating and marginalizing certain kids, against uh, prejudice, hmm. uh, and, you know, encourage kids to um, um, be more inclusive and to find diversity interesting rather than threatening. Um, what a so. powerful resource. Like, yeah. When we grew up, David, I, I don't know exactly how old you are, but I'm thinking we didn't have anything like this. You just you just saw the bully out in the you know out on the basketball court and had to deal with it on your way home. Now we're talking about it in some situations, but uh, how powerful that so if that doesn't exist in your school, you could you're just suggesting parents go go explore that, go push that idea. Yes. Um, when, we, when we survey kids and ask them what they're concerned about, uh, being the victims of bullying and peer aggression, it are, it's children's number one Is it? anxiety. Uh, you know, it's not stranger danger. It's not the, the, the adult stranger kidnapping. Um, but it is. Kids feel very vulnerable, and some kids much more vulnerable than others. We, we've identified a group of kids we call poly victims who tend to be uh, repeatedly victimized in a variety of different situations by a range of different uh, antagonists. Um, and it's a little bit unclear why these kids uh, are the target of so much you know, they, they perhaps are not as appealing. Maybe they have some irritating habits or uh, maybe they're a little bit different in some way. Um, maybe they, uh, you know, tend to be a little bit emotionally uh, out of control. But um, they tend to be the target of a, of a lot, uh, both in the home and in the school and the neighborhood. And, and these are a group of kids I think we need to pay particular attention to uh, because um, a lot of the effects, the, you know, the mental health effects um, are, are most severe on this group mm. of kids. Do they have their own? It almost seems like, like a child that might have uh, hyperactivity, um, ADHD, might be more stressful for a parent. Or one that might have anxiety or depression. Exactly. And so, yeah. so then, interesting. So, so because of their weakness, they end up becoming. You call them, I guess, a, a poly victim. Yes. And then, the, then they're. I mean, uneven. It, they just become more of a stressful child for a parent. The parent might lash out more, or more difficult for their co their 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 cohort, their friends to to yeah. like. That's I mean, there are, a variety of, there are a variety of kids who, who seem to attract this kind of um, negative attention. For example, boys who uh, are not conventionally uh, masculine or a little bit on the effeminate side, for example, tend to be targets. Uh, uh, girls who are nonconforming in terms of gender stereotypes hmm. 
sometimes are the targets of, uh, of this. Um, kids who are disabled in some way are more likely to be targets. Um, in some environments, you know, kids who are, come from a different racial or ethnic group, if they're in a small minority, can be targets. So um, um, we, we need to pay particular attention to, to helping to protect those kids. It's interesting. It's such a subtle discrimination, isn't it? It's And it starts young. We, we People well, are already, it, like, culling the herd. It, it is true that for some for some reason, you know, this is part of human nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we get together in groups, um, certain kinds of differences uh, tend to draw negative attention. Um, and kids who haven't learned uh, norms and standards, and, and they need help uh, in overcoming, I think, what's something of a natural tendency uh, to bond together against uh, uh, certain other kinds of young people. And it seems like and, discussions. Uh, adults need adults need to set be good models. Yeah, as well. Like uh, parents, uh, this seems like a great thing to talk about and mm-hmm. and bring up that you know. So I heard so and so had trouble at school today. I hope how how do you treat that child? And I mean, there's really powerful lessons that parents can play. Do you sense in any way that technology is changing anything? Is technology? I mean, now we've got it seems like another way that the children could be abused or harmed, um, and also, I guess, educated. What do you sense happening Well, there? you know, I, 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 think that it, I, I think that the technology is both, you know, a, a benefit and a problem. Yeah, but, but it may be more of a benefit than a problem, Good. given that, that we've seen declines during the time in which the technology has been gaining its foothold. I mean, it's true that kids can be bullied and harassed online, mm-hmm. um, but it's also true that uh, uh, kids use their um, technology to summon help they need it. Uh, it's sometimes revealed problems, you know, when parent, kids show the, the log of the conversations that have gone on or somebody uses their cell phone to take a picture of something that's going on that, you know, nobody would have known about or it would have just been hearsay and uh-huh. people uh, having different views about what happened. Um, and there's also opportunities for kids who were marginalized in the past to get support from other kids using, the, uh, using you know, social networks. Um, I think... Uh, you know, it, it's had positive effects as well as negative effects. That's powerful. What else do we need to know, David? Again, we're speaking with Dr. David Finkelor, who is the director of the Crimes Against Children Research Center and co-director of the Family Research Laboratory. Uh, he's a professor of sociology at the University of New Hampshire. As we as we we've got about two or three more minutes, David. What what else do we need to know? in order to protect our children and decrease that ten percent that actually are injured. I guess, is that annually or is that in a lifetime? That's annually. Annually. No, that's Man, annually. That's 10% of our kids are actually injured. They have some tangible injury uh, because of violence or abuse annually. What else should we be doing? Well, 
Um, we have we have some actually very good resources in the in the mental health system uh, for helping kids, um, and unfortunately. Uh, those resources haven't been as widely disseminated as they should be. So there's, there are techniques for helping kids who've been targeted and traumatized by a violence. Uh, there's a there there's therapies something called tra- trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy. There's um, cognitive behavioral treatment for um, uh, young children. Um, there, there are a variety of mental health uh, approaches that really can help kids a lot. And one of the concerns we have, of course, is that kids who've been exposed to a lot of violence grow up and become abusers and violent themselves mm-hmm. or have substantial mental health problems or get involved in drug and alcohol abuse. Or, um, and we have the ability to... Uh, reduce the likelihood that that's going to happen. So uh, making sure the communities have those resources uh, is important. Where do they um, get those, David? I mean, I, I know your website uh, is... Make sure, that, uh, make sure that, you know, that counseling services have people trained to provide uh, those uh, treatments for uh, young people, that there are specialists in children's mental health uh, in communities... Uh, uh, in your area, this is important uh, yeah. to lobby for to make sure that uh, that that those kinds of treatments are covered by insurance and um, yeah, so people can access them. And, and that's the benefit too, is I guess knowing that um, knowing that those resources are there, and you know, pushing pushing to make sure if they're not there that, that we're talking about it. Um, as well as as well as taking advantage of them, we've been speaking, uh, David. We appreciate you, and we appreciate your insight on this. Keep up the great work and the great research, and and uh, your work there on crimes against children at the research center. We appreciate again, Dr. David Finklor, and his and his work on that. Uh, if you want, go. You can go look up David Finklor, F I N K E L H O R, um, at the University of New Hampshire. He really, there's a great website. Um, if you if you Google that, you'll you'll get to his website. Tons of resources right there on the site. Web links, just great resources. If you want to uh, follow more of these topics of bullying and child advocacy, powerful stuff, folks. Again, to think that 10 percent of our kids experience actual physical abuse yearly, where that where an injury is left on the child. Ah. Oh. Come on. That we can do something about. We'll take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us when we come back. We'll do a coach's corner, give you some tools on how to teach your children emotional intelligence, uh, maybe help them control their own emotions as you control yours. We'll take a break. Stick with us. To the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's something that's really fascinating for me. We we are such emotional creatures, aren't we? And so some of us have just never learned 
how to manage these emotions. We don't know how to do it. And then, you know, we naturally just spank. We might spank our kids, but then when you bring on a national expert who's talking about children and violence, and the research shows that by spanking your children, you create children that are more aggressive and, and spank and or hurt other or hit other people. So by spanking your children, you're more likely to create people that hit people. Well, yeah, but my daddy spanked me and look how I turned out. Well, great. Fantastic. But is, what's interesting is we we are getting better as as a society in managing our emotions. Like uh, he was Dr. Finkler was just telling us you're we're getting healthier. There's less abuse of children, except 10 percent of children annually are still abused. They are harmed with a bruise or a cut or some need. I mean, they don't always need to go to the hospital, but there is a mark from what how parents or others are dealing with them and bullying and things like that. So one of the things I just wanted to work on a little bit in this Coach's Corner is give you some other tools for things we can do. There's a lot of other things we could be doing to um, help uh, to to figure out how to help people manage some of this emotion. Um, one of the things I would just suggest right out front is recognize it. We've got to learn to recognize people's emotions. When they have an emotion, that emotion is telling us something's going on inside. Now, if a bully's coming up to, to beat you up, you know, this might not help. But when you have the conversation and you see your child is quiet or maybe a little more reserved, more afraid to go to school, notice the emotions that they're, that they're sharing and, exp- and recognize it. Don't react to the emotion. Don't freak out because your child's freaking out. If all of a sudden you keep reacting to your child's emotion, guess what? You are your child. So we don't need any more people reacting to each other's emotions. Let's just start recognizing it. And to recognize it, you could hold it out and say, Okay, son, you seem angry. What's going on? Well, you, you tell me. I can just point out the emotion you see. If you see sad, say that. Son, you seem sad. If you see they're happy, point it out. Man, how many how many people would love to be happy and actually have somebody notice it? Hey, you seem happy. It's and then by the way, the minute you notice the emotion, guess what the person's going to probably do? They're going to want to explore the story behind the emotion. Oh, the funniest thing just happened. When you recognize someone sad, you seem down, you seem bummed. What's up? Let them then explore their story. What if with our kids, instead of being angry at them because they're angry at, our, at their brother, what if we recognize, you, I can see you're frustrated with your brother. What's going on? And then let them explore the story. The problem is I get hijacked by their emotion. I get messed up because they're mad, I go mad, and then all of a sudden, uh-oh, dad's mad. And when dad's mad, it ain't going to be pretty. How do we get through this if we can't teach our kids to let the emotions be there and then from the emotion try to understand the story behind it? I call it getting real. We recognize the emotion. We explore the story behind it. Everybody has that has an emotion will have a story behind it. There's going to be a story. And if you can get the person to share their story, then that will get the emotion out by using words instead of anger and aggression. We recognize the emotion. You seem upset. What's going on? Explore the story. Let them tell their story. It doesn't matter if you don't like their story. You don't need to critique them or correct the child yet. You just need to explore the story. 
Inside of the story, I would attend to what the real issue is. There's a deeper need, and I call it the starve stuff, but everybody deep down wants to feel safety, trust, appreciation, respect, validation, encouragement, dedication. It's a starved need. If you basically get to the starved need, recognize the emotion, explore the story, and get down to the starved issue, the deeper issue. Because if you can go figure out if it's a safety issue, a trust issue, a respect, a validation— you're going to have some powerful tools. And then the L of get real is just to lift the conversation. Recognize what they're feeling and, and, then, and then use the word and and then explain what you need to tell them. I appreciate I can see that you really feel unsafe by your brother hitting you in the head with the, with the golf ball. Um, and you can't throw golf balls back at him. And we'll take care of your brother. And I'm sorry you, I'm sorry you were feeling that way. You can correct it. Don't don't get me wrong. You don't have to just let them walk all over each other. We can correct these things. But at some point, you got to have a better plan than just blowing up because they're blowing up. Anyway, if you want more information on that, just go to matttownsend.com. I'm, I'm pretty sure on that site I've got an entire video on Get Real that you can watch. Uh, it's a pretty interesting tool. We'll take a break, my friends. Hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. Done. Done. Let's take care of our kids, by the way. We'll take a break. Come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Man, have we got a great show for you today. Last hour, we talked about uh, uh, how to handle your children better, less abuse. 10% of the children out there are being abused. And uh, we talked a lot about just emotional management, your need to learn to manage your head and your, your heart. And interestingly, a movie came out that I'm sure you've seen by Pixar called Inside Out. It was a box office hit. And um, we're going to be talking with Dr. Kimberly Cena Moore in a few minutes. She's going to give us the top five lessons she learned about the psychology of Inside Out. And uh, it's just it's just fascinating because one of the benefits of the movie Inside Out is it taught us a lot about our emotions and emotional management. So we're carrying over the theme from hour number one into the second hour. So we'll be speaking with Dr. Cena Moore in just a few minutes um, on the psychology of Inside Out. But it's also interesting how movies can can get the conversations going. And uh, it's also a crazy thing to think what the the lessons that my children learn and know already by just simply watching a show like Inside Out, I'd never had those learnings or those understandings by the age of ten. My kids know stuff today that that I didn't even fathom knowing. In fact, uh, my son basically turned into my therapist over the weekend, and was able to give me some pretty interesting insight into my own relationship with my wife, and which was like, wow, where have you been, son? You don't even, you don't even shave. Yet he knew a lot and could see the pattern. So as we're, as we're thinking about our kids, don't think that they're just sitting back clueless. 
you are, our children today in this day and age are more prepared than ever. And it's probably just, you know, they're learning stuff, they're reading stuff, they're listening to stuff. And apparently a lot of that, uh, the social media trends that they're getting, all of those little emails and texts that they get and send out, they're learning some stuff. So hopefully you're trusting your kids a little bit more, not just thinking that, ah, these kids nowadays, it's all a waste. It really isn't. So we'll be talking about the power of your kids uh, today, as well as just some of the things we need to be learning and knowing. And uh, really, there's power in them, their kidlets. Let's uh, go, though, to our great, uh, by the way, returned. Kathy Aiken has just returned from being with a bunch of kids. Mm-hmm. And she's here to bring us the headlines. Kathy? I made it. I made it. You Thanks, did it. Matt. You bet. A 24-year-old man from London was accused by British authorities this morning of planning a terrorist attack targeting American military personnel in the U.K. The man and his uncle are also charged with planning to travel to Syria to join ISIS. The two men were arrested at two separate addresses and are scheduled to appear in court today. Add Ohio Governor John Kasich to the long list of GOP presidential candidates. Kasich is expected to make his announcement official today at Ohio State University. He'll be the 16th Republican to join the race. Kasich was chairman of the House Budget Committee and successfully balanced the federal budget during Bill Clinton's presidency. Kasich's late entry, however, may be an issue since polls show he has only 2% of support from Republicans at this stage of the race. The Des Moines Register, Iowa's top newspaper, is asking GOP presidential contender Donald Trump to bow out of the race. This after Trump's controversial comments about John McCain's time as a POW during the Vietnam War. The Arizona senator said Trump needs to apologize to all POWs. I think he may owe an apology to the families of those who have sacrificed in conflict and uh, and those who have undergone the prison experience uh, in serving their country. Critics of Trump have pointed out that while McCain was locked in a Vietnamese prison cell, Trump was working on an Ivy League degree. Meanwhile, Trump leads Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker by 11 points in a recent poll. However, this was before Trump's recent comments. The motive in the Chattanooga shooting remains a mystery. Mohammed Abdulaziz was scheduled to appear in court next week for a DUI. Instead, officials are wondering what led the 24-year-old to kill four Marines and a sailor last week at a recruiting station. The U.S military has ordered recruiting centers across the country to step up security measures. Meanwhile, the flag at the U.S. Capitol is flying at half-mast today in honor of the victims. President Obama, however, has not ordered the flag lowered at the White House. 39-year-old American Zach Johnson won the British Open in a four-hole playoff yesterday. This is 18 and Zach Johnson for birdie to get to 15. Championship right there! That can do it! Zach Johnson with a huge birdie to close out That was coverage from ESPN of Johnson's 30-foot birdie putt on the 18th hole in regulation that got him to the playoff. Johnson also won the Masters title in 2007. And Matt, do you believe in miracles? Absolutely. Well, got a great one here. An 86-year-old man from Connecticut had really an amazing miracle this month. Here's here's the story. Peter and Grace Bailello... By Le- Ye- I'm probably Bayeo were married for 50 years, uh-huh. and Grace oh, cool. died of cancer last fall. But seven years ago, the two each took a dollar bill and signed their names on it and gave it to each other, kind of their sign of everlasting love. Oh, neat. 
Peter, however, you know, it was the dollar bill was in his wallet and accidentally spent it two years after his wife signed it. So that was five years ago. Okay, oh, no. five years ago. Yeah. Well, a couple of months ago, Peter takes his granddaughter to a local subway in Connecticut, and part of his change. The, le- the, dollar, the dollar bill comes that back. his wife signed is that oh, crazy? That is cool. That so is here cool. he was missing his wife, and here comes a dollar bill. Is that just that is just amazing? Amazing. I mean, what are the odds? Well, and two, tell me he didn't need that like a little oh, oomph. Pick me up, eighty-six-year-old missing his wife terribly, and finds the dollar bill in his change. Wow. Now I thought that was illegal. He's lucky he didn't get arrested. <laughs> that would have ended. You know the story. what? In the PC uh, environment we're living in, he probably would oh, have been. Oh, but what a neat story! Isn't that great? Now, what if he finds her doll? The That's other what doll. he's hoping that, for. That'll that, happen. He's hoping that that will come around sometime. Now, if that came around, I want to take him to Las Vegas or something. Oh, for sure. You know, Hook him up with the lotto. <laughs> exactly. That is neat. Neat story. Yeah, great story. Cool. Good job, Kathy. And uh, you know, for everybody else out there, you could always. Sure, break the little law, but get a cool miracle in return. What a great, uh, what a great feeling that is. We're going to take a break, folks. Uh, if, have you seen the movie Inside Out? Tons of just interesting insight behind that. You've heard me share mine. Uh, coming up, Dr. Kimberly Cena Moore is going to be joining us. She's going to give us her take on the psychology of Inside Out, and uh, I think it's fascinating. Just the more we talk about this, the more our children are learning about the power of their emotions, which might help them help us all control our emotions a lot better. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back focusing on emotional intelligence and the Pixar movie Inside Out up next. Welcome back, friends. You know, Disney's Pixar's uh, Inside Out broke box office records as the biggest opening weekend for a wholly original movie. Its debut record was $90.44 million. And there's no denying the popularity of the film, but what about the film's accuracy? Does the film actually teach us anything about what's going on in our heads and with our emotions? And is what it's teaching accurate? Dr. Kimberly Senna uh, Moore is joining us. She's a blogger for Psychology Today's Your Musical Self. She joins us now live to talk to us about uh, the psychology of Inside Out. Again, Dr. Kimberly Senna Moore, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you, Matt. Uh, nice to nice to meet you and chat with you. Great to have you on, and uh, I love your blog. You're you're a musical therapist. You do yes. music therapy. Yes, I do. I'm a music therapist, have been for over 10 years now. And it's funny because we'll get to it, but there, there was, there was uh, a mention in this movie about the, uh, what do they call them, earworms? Is that what they call them? <laughs> yes, it is. Earworms. We'll, we'll get there. I want, I, I'm dying to hear your take on that. What, what did you think about the entire, the, the production of Inside Out? As a, as a psychologist, as a therapist, what was your take? Well, and, and I'm approaching it not just as a psychologist and a therapist, but also as a parent. Mm. And overall, I really, I loved the movie. Yeah. I mean, as, as, just as a person, I loved the movie. Um, I've been a fan of Pixar movies for years. But with this one in particular, um, I really appreciated how it integrated the science 
uh, into the movie, into the storyline and the characters. And in a way, and this is where the, the parent in me comes in, in a way that's really accessible for children. Mm-hmm. And easy, you know, easy for them to understand with these characters and how the characters grow and evolve, not just the emotions, but the character of Riley herself. Yeah, because um, that, that was the context, right? So there's Riley and inside of Riley's head's, head is, are all of these emotions, five different emotions that are kind of playing on her. Did you, did you love the idea, too, that this creates this conversation piece for you to have with your children? Now you can start talking. It does, and I have been conversing yeah. with my children about it. Um, but also, too, not just for the children, but for those who watch after children, whether they're parents or teachers or therapists or student therapists, student teachers. This provides an accessible common language to to characterize and discuss, like you said, to discuss and talk about the complexity of emotions. Yeah, I loved it. Talk about what were some of your findings. I mean, one of the things you, you really got to like is just the focus on emotion. Just people have basic emotions. Yes, they do. And and I did appreciate that, especially since that, I mean, you know, personally, that fits right into my line of research interest. I, I look at one aspect of emotions called emotion regulation and how that develops. Um, but the focus... Uh, again, not just on emotions. I mean, yes, you had the five basic emotions of, of happy or you know joy, sadness, anger, disgust, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious, yeah. um, and fear. So you have not just those five categories of very basic emotions, but I think the brilliant part of this movie is how it portrays the relationships with them and how they grow more complex as we develop. It's true, huh? They They... They're very basic, but they also have a very deep, complex side and, and even a relationship between each emotion. Exactly. And and not just with emotions. The other interesting thing is that this movie portrayed beautifully is the connection between emotions and our memories. And then also how that's tied into our identity and the creation mm. of and development of our identity and who we are. Yeah. In fact, talk about that because how does how does that work? I mean, emotion and memory they they seem to really go hand in hand. You need you need some chemistry, some emotional driver to to impact a memory. Exactly, and and if you think about it, our most powerful memories are those that are tinged with emotion. Mm. Our emotional memories, and and some of the time this back into what I do professionally. I'm a music therapist. One of the mechanisms that works um, works for us is this relationship, not just between emotions and memory, but music, emotions and memories. Mm. Music can trigger uh, an emotional memory um, almost as strongly as smell. Smell's a little stronger. Oh, is it? I mean, yeah, I, so, so academically, is. smell is a, is a stronger uh, trigger. It's a yes, and it's it has to do with how we've evolved. It's a much more primitive mechanism mm-hmm. than um, than hearing. Yeah, but but true. How true is it that I mean, I can hear a song and I can remember vividly the emotion of a funeral I went to when I was you know fifteen. Exactly, it takes you right back to that place, to that time, to that person, to that feeling, and. It's not something we have any control over. It happens automatically. 
Wow. Well, and you think about these uh, these poor, uh, you know, military service people that come back from war with PTSD and boy, their memories, because they were tinged with massive emotion, these traumatic events are hard to get out of their head. And then a smell or a sound or a song even could actually have them, you know, fall right back into their emotion. And, and that's a bit of the dark side, isn't it? Yeah. Because you're, you're absolutely right for those, you know, sometimes those emotional memories aren't always positive. Sometimes they're incredibly negative and associated with this high level of stress and physiologic arousal. And, you know, in, in that type of situation that you're talking about in a, in a war zone or a military situation, uh, our, our soldiers are often bombarded with these sights and sounds and smells on a very regular basis. Mm. And that's hard to, to escape from when yeah. you're in that heightened level of arousal day after day, hour after hour. We had a, a, a another guest on the show that is doing some research in Florida where they actually put people in these um, kind of like, uh, I don't know what you call them, but they put them in, they let them watch the videos but they'd also inject smells and traumatic sounds and noises into these videos about war and service. And they were actually they're video games. And it would actually bring back these the traumatic uh, stressors that would take place with these poor soldiers. And then they'd stop the, the program and then do therapy and have the person learn to recover themselves and then bring them back into the event again. And they would use technology to, to kind of – walk them through their traumatic events, and then let the therapy kick in. It's, it sounds like a technologically enhanced version of exposure therapy. Yeah, it, exactly, exactly mm-hmm. what it is. And is that what you do with your music therapy? Not as much. We do not purposefully um, Take- uh, place clients in those t- situations. What ends up happening is that, you know, so often unintentionally a song will trigger mm. something. Sometimes the client doesn't even know. Uh, and the song will trigger something. And part of our role as, as a music therapist is to respond and react um, in a therapeutically appropriate way. Yeah. And so we'll, um, sometimes that will occur musically. Sometimes that'll be through some sort of verbal processing. Um, but it, it is our, you know, part of our role is to, like I said, respond and, and react to the clients when that happens. But we don't intentionally place, clients, yeah. you know, put clients in those situations. That's not within our, our scope of training. What uh, What's interesting about um, the movie in the movie Pixar or the movie Inside Out is how the memories are stored and um, and how they sometimes, I guess, kind of age, they wither, they kind of they lose their emotional impact and those memories are lost is that is that really how I mean I mean they're not stored in balls in our brains but <laughs> is that how, is it is that eventually does the memory fade as the emotional uh, significance wanes or disappears? Uh, it it can absolutely memories can fade. I mean, have you ever moved? I mean, I've I've moved a couple of times in in the past you know ten years and there are you know from some of the places where I lived before, there are certain memories or people or streets where I just, I really don't remember them anymore. Mm-hmm. So without some sort of uh, continual repetition or reminder, memories can fade. Now, that said, 
one of the other memory pieces this movie depicts is this idea of a core memory. Yeah. Now, that's not really a, a you know technical academic term, but it's a really nice concept for those memories. There are memories that always stay with us, mm. no matter how old we get, uh, no matter the experiences we have. There are certain memories that stay deep within us, and and you know every pretty much anybody, unless you have some sort of uh, you know, cognitive impairment that's impeding this memory process. Um, you remember things from your childhood. You remember things from your teenage years. Uh, and, and so there are certain memories that do stick with us. And it almost seemed like that th- that's where those core memories become part of our identity. Like in Riley's case in the movie Inside Out, her core memories were about hockey or about family or just being about, you know, adventurous, rambunctious um, or having fun, is that, it, do, is that becomes part of our identity. We, we start to have these core insights into who we are. Is that, is that um, did you find that fairly legitimate? I think it's I, um, an interesting idea, and, and it does beg the question, though, is it a core memory because that event happened, or is it a core memory because of the value we placed mm. on it? So it's a bit of a, a chicken and an egg. I, I do think that there is a relationship. I don't think it's quite as direct as what's portrayed in the movie. Yeah. But then again, we're talking about a, a children's movie. So right, right. <laughs> I think Pixar did just fine. They did just fine, didn't they? And especially because they're they're still just piecing together a bunch of important pieces that you know may not work exactly as shown, but but still can add a lot of insight. Uh, Again, we're speaking with Dr. Kimberly Senna Moore, and she's uh, walking us through the psychology of Inside Out, that uh, new Disney Pixar movie that uh, is all the rage. Stick with us. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion, find out a little bit more about uh, our emotional memories. Also, I want to learn more about earworms. Have you ever heard of an earworm? Well, uh, I'm pretty sure Dr. Kimberly Senna-Moore has got a lot of insight on those as well. We'll take a break. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. To the Matt Townsend Show. If you've seen the movie, Disney Pixar's movie Inside Out, you probably uh, you're probably going to love this uh, discussion we're having with Dr. Uh, Kimberly Senamore. She is a, uh, a Psychology Today um, blogger, but also a music therapist. And if you go to her website, musictherapymaven.com, you can get some great insight about music therapy and the power. That, uh, that you have there. Um, we're trying, as we go th- through this discussion, to just understand the great lessons, and there's so many that are in the movie, Inside Out, but we wanted to just uh, focus on as many as we could. So again, Dr. Kimberly Senna-Moore, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy to be here, Matt. Thank you. Great to have you here. Talk to us a little bit about um, about your your work, first of all, with um, music and music therapy, because there's a part of the movie where they get into earworms, 
And um, I'm sure that, that that really jives with, with what you teach in your music therapy practice. Well, and it just it made me laugh in the movie, and especially when they brought it up at the end as the ending credits were rolling, they kept bringing in this concept of earworms. Yeah. Um, you know, earworms, oh, they're, they're so annoying, aren't they? Uh, <laughs> there's some different names for them. Uh, some people call them sticky music or a cognitive itch, um, stuck song syndrome. There's actually a technical academic term for people. There are people who study earworms. And, and that term is involuntary musical imagery. Um, yeah, I'm just going to stick with earworms. <laughs> yeah, earworms is better. In, so, but th- these are songs that you just can't get out of your head. Exactly. And you never know what triggers them. Sometimes, you know, actually hearing the song triggers it. Sometimes it's just a thought you have, or uh, maybe something you hear that vaguely sounds like Mm-hmm. Whatever that particular earworm is, um, sometimes it's just you know being bored or being stressed, or I mean there, there are a lot of different reasons that earworms happen, um, but they they do they they stay stuck in your head. They they tend to be these short snippets of songs, <laughs> um, often very repetitive, yeah. upbeat. Um, you know, usually, you know, pretty rhythmic of some sort, but it's it's not even the whole song. It's just like a phrase of a song yeah. that goes over and over and over again. Is it is it would you consider it as a professional? Is it torture if you're if you have people that intentionally try to get you stuck in an earworm? Because oh, like I have man. people that like that will play songs just to get you <laughs> stuck. <laughs> A little uh, friendly jabbing. How yeah, that, that sounds like torture. <laughs> but it's true. It's it's uh, now. What is going on in the brain, though? I guess it just it likes it, it. I mean, it's probably a consistent, repetitive thought. Just keep using it. It it just say so. You know, we don't really know what's <laughs> happening and why these happen. There are people out there who are studying it and they're starting to look at you know what characteristics. You know what makes up an earworm. What makes it an earworm, or how do they start? But we we really don't know why they why they happen. Um, so <laughs> but, you know, maybe, maybe we'll know in five ten years. Who knows? But in your blog, you made the point. It, but it's a real thing, and it's a real thing that people are actually studying. So if anybody's out there in listener land and they they experience these earworms, just know you're normal, and eventually <laughs> there will be help on the way. That's right. That's right. It's <laughs> so interesting. What other things stood out for you in the movie, uh, the Inside Out movie? Any any other like major things we need to understand or just, you know, that, that are important to, to be able to share with your kids? Well, one of the other items that we haven't quite, we touched on a little earlier in our conversation, but it's this idea of how our emotional selves mature and develop and grow more complex. And in the movie, if you remember at the, the very beginning of the movie, Riley, who's this 11-year-old girl, has her emotions have this control panel in, in her brain. And there are some basic buttons and, and um, levers that, that five different emotions can pull and push as needed to help Riley manage and organize and make sense of what's happening to her. But at the very end of the, the movie, I mean, although it's not stated explicitly, Riley is now shifted to a, being a preteen. Mm. And the emotions get a new control panel. And do you remember what it looks like? No. 
it's it's much more complex. There are many more buttons, and, ah. and now instead of one main manager, each emotion has kind of its own different set of buttons and levers to work with. Yeah. Um, and then also, if you remember, although we don't see it in Riley, in her parents, we see inside their heads as well. Yeah, there, isn't then, that interesting? But by, they have similar emotional, you know, entities, but they're all so much more complex. Much more complex, a more complex control panel. And the other interesting piece is that the the kind of the head emotion is different. In the mom, the head emotion is sadness. Mm. And in the dad, the head emotion is fear. Interesting. And so I, I also think that right, that speaks to how, you know, um, individually we tend to be driven and characterized by kind of a different mix-up of emotions, different but, ratios of, of where that that. Yeah. And I mean, that's probably true for everyone, right? That we would relate to one more, one emotion maybe more than the other emotion. Exactly. We might feel more fear than anger, but it's it's interesting how quickly fear could turn to anger. Absolutely, absolutely. That's a. I mean, that really is an. It's such an interesting insight, and to be able to show your children that as we go through life, you started fairly simplistic, and now you're you're getting a little more complicated, but also more robust. You're actually more. You're able to experience much more. Exactly, you are, and and to experience some of the more secondary emotions like shame and embarrassment and guilt, it's it's actually a very important developmental step to to move through that progression and to become more complex human beings. And and to 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 be able to see the great synergy that takes place between um joy and sadness that creates mm-hmm. some other essential experience. Exactly. And and that synergy, I mean in the movie of course the primary focus is on joy and sadness, but that type of synergy can happen between any of the emotions. Do you notice too that uh, I mean we also kind of lead with our strength. So if somebody really is always joyful, they might always come at everything in a supposed joyful way, but there's just as much value at coming at something through sadness. I mean it's just a different lens, right? Exactly. There's no one right way. It's it's one of the elements, I guess, that, that makes us colorful, that makes us different and unique. Yeah. But there's no one wrong makeup. They're just different. What what has your experience been like with your kids as you've as you've as you delve into this? You're you're an expert in this, but um, what what are your conversations like with them? Give us some insight as to how we could maybe coach or work with our kids a little bit better. Absolutely. Well, my my children are. Uh, a couple of years away from the preteen years, so we're still in the basic emotions idea. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a, I have an eight year old and a six year old, and so most of the conversations now, I mean, a, a lot of what we're working on is is to help um, our children recognize, okay, this is how I'm feeling right now, so that they can, if needed, shift yeah. their feelings. So when they're really angry, okay, instead of instead of you know hitting. And yelling, recognize what this feels like. This is anger inside. Recognize it, and let's maybe take a break. Let's just go to your room and calm down for a little bit. Let's go for a run or, you know, some other strategy. So uh, a lot of my approach right now with, with my children and where they are developmentally is just getting them to recognize the feeling that they have, how it feels in their 
in their body because there's always some sort of arousal experience when we have an emotion. Mm. So getting them to recognize what that feels like so that they can learn to self-regulate their emotions. I mean, that really is the beginning, isn't it? Because if they can't recognize it, they, they, they're not going to see it. They're not going to live it. Exactly. And recognize it not just in themselves, but in somebody, in, in somebody else, too. Which is, this is the root of emotional intelligence, right? Yes. Is the ability to recognize your own emotions, kind of manage your emotions to some degree, recognize the emotions of others, and, and, and help manage those emotions with them. Absolutely. And it's, and it's foundational for the ability to develop trust and to develop relationships and empathy and, you know, just a lot of aspects of overall mental health. Hmm. And, and if I can make one other yeah. point, you know, we've been focusing about uh, how this movie is providing a framework for children, but it's also providing a framework for parents. You know, I study emotions and emotion regulation and music and emotions, but most people out there don't. And so part of the brilliance and the beauty of Inside Out is that it provides an education for parents as well so that they can talk to their children about emotions. And, yeah. and even though this, um, you know, this movie covers a period in, in Riley's life that's really transitional and transformative. And so for all those parents out there and, and teachers and caregivers of children who are beginning to shift into the preteen years and, and then the adolescent years, which this movie alludes to but doesn't mm-hmm. get to, at the very end, Joyce says something like, oh, I, I forget exactly what she says, but something along the lines of, I can't imagine this getting any worse. <laughs> you know, for those of us who have worked with teenagers, yeah. who have teenagers as children, um, you know that it, there it's a period of time where it's going to get worse. <laughs> oh, yeah. But can you imagine it's the perfect setup for a sequel where all of a sudden you can go through Riley's teenage brain mm-hmm. and and watch her watch just watch what happens with those five emotions when when hormones are in. I mean, can you imagine what the character oh. Pixar would put together for what a hormone would look like? I know. I think Happy would be put in the closet a lot. <laughs> no, totally. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There'd be a lot of anger and, oh, a lot of disgust. Disgust would take center stage for a while, I yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, there was really that enlightening moment in the movie when you watch the mother and the father trying to work with the daughter and how everybody was coming at it from their own, their own head, their own emotional core, their own emotional center. And and really how how we're having one conversation, but we have three people on on three different pages. You know, you make a very a great point, Matt. And um, you know, in the movie, they of course characterize here's the role of the mom that's caring and worrying, yeah. and sadness is in control, and here is you know uh, the caricature of the father figure who's completely <laughs> tuned out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then wondering what's he's what's going listening on. to what's a happening? game. <laughs> that's right. Exactly, watching the game. Um, and, and, of course, those are generalizations. But that idea, like you said, that idea that it's the same conversation, the same experience, but three very different interpretations of what's happening. Oh, isn't that crazy? And then um, then the fear could kick in for the father that's like, okay, I'm missing something here. This isn't working. <laughs> and and then how my emotion plays on your emotion, it really – it it is. It's just. It's basically relationship emotional management one hundred and one, and it's so basic, isn't it? It it is, but it's so it's complex. A beautiful starting point, and and they. I 
the way they characterize it um, in the movie Inside Out, it's I'm, I'm I've been very impressed with this movie. Yeah. No, totally. And 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 I think, too, your blog post uh, on psychology today, I think, is enlightening as well. So, well, we appreciate you, Dr. Kimberly Senamore. Great job. And keep uh, keep talking to your kids. That's that's just a great example to all of us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You bet. You bet. Everybody go check out the website musictherapymaven.com where you can get uh, more of her information about her blogs. Just she's got a lot of resources. That's the goal of the show, right? Give you the tools you need. Life's not perfect, but it doesn't need to be. Sometimes we just need to be willing to learn and understand. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to uh, go to one of our, our my favorite segments, Seeing the Good in the World. And uh, Kathy Aiken will be here to walk us through, you know, another example in this great uh, life of ours about what's working and uh, where there's goodness. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. to the Matt Townsend Show. One of my favorite things that we do on the show is uh, we like to go down, track down examples in our community, in our life, uh, of people that are that can actually see the good in the world and, and that are magnifying goodness so that we can hold that up as an example, as a role model. And Kathy Aiken is here today to, to introduce another uh, another example. That's right, Matt. You know, there's been a lot of news about our great military, some of it uh, due to very, some very unfortunate circumstances. But we found a story of a former Navy SEAL who's making news in a most remarkable way. Jason Redman is a military man through and through. He was born and raised surrounded by those serving our country. My grandfather had fought in World War II. My great uncle had uh, also fought and lost his life flying in the Pacific. Uh, my my dad's dad was a B-24 pilot. My dad served in the Army. Um, during Vietnam, he didn't go over and fight in the war, but he was training guys that were going over. And uh, these were the stories I grew up with. And it's, I think from a very young age, it was the road that I wanted to go down. That road led Jason to a life in the Navy and eventually to the grueling role of a Navy SEAL. My class started with uh, 148, and we graduated 19 originals. Um, so it definitely is very difficult training. It's considered by many as the toughest training in the United States military and some argue in the world. In May of 2004, Redmond was commissioned a Naval Special Warfare Officer. One year later, he was deployed to Afghanistan, and in 2007, he was sent to Iraq. During an early morning mission on September 13th, his unit was looking for a high-profile target. It didn't take long for Redmond's life to be altered forever and we walked into a very well-organized uh, enemy ambush that opened up on myself and my teammates. So I would say at least uh, eight times that we know of between my body and body armor, weapon and helmet, uh, and several other members of my team were shot up pretty well. Redmond credits his teammates and Air Force cover for saving his life, but his injuries were severe. So I lost my nose, I lost my right cheekbone, it shattered all the bones around my eye, I lost my orbital floor, the bone that your eye sits on, it damaged my eye muscles and it uh, shattered my jaw, doing damage to 
my the joint of my jaw and actually breaking uh, most of the bones in my jaw all the way up to my chin. Redmond said it took a couple of weeks for him to fully understand the amount of damage he suffered. He saw his face for the first time during a CT scan of his head. I don't think they thought about this, but when they got me into that machine, there was a mirror, and that was the first time I saw my face, and I didn't, I didn't even recognize myself. I mean, my, my face was swollen. The right side of my face was swollen to... Um, She's like a basketball, and I was crisscrossed with all these stitches, and I had no nose, I had these tubes, and um, my both eyes were bloodshot red. It was then he knew recovery would be long and difficult. During numerous flights to and from his home in Virginia for facial reconstructive surgery, Redmond grew angry from the constant stares from strangers. And it bothered me. Um, one, it bothered me because I didn't like being stared at. Um, I was already self-conscious enough and uncomfortable with the way I looked. Um, secondary to that, most people who would come up and talk to me, um, the very few who had the um, courage to actually ask me what happened wrongly assumed I'd been in an automobile accident or a motorcycle accident. And I, I thought to myself, you know, what, what a shame. We've been at war now for six years at this point, and people don't even contemplate that maybe these could be war wartime injuries. Following months of similar incidents, Redmond had had enough. So I made these t-shirts um, that said, you know, stop staring, shot by a machine gun for your freedom, just say thank you. Um, you know, I had another one that said, you know, stop staring, shot by a machine gun, it would have killed you. Uh, you know, so a little bit angry. Uh, and I put an American flag on the back and called it Wounded after realizing he wasn't the only one facing those stares and feelings, Redmond developed three more t-shirt slogans. Forever recognizing the cost of freedom, scarred so that others may live free, and then what have you done for your country lately? And uh, that became the beginning of Wounded Wear. Redmond founded Wounded Wear in 2009, which donates clothing to wounded warriors and the families of fallen soldiers. They also have clothing to help fit those with prosthetic devices. But he quickly found clothing was not enough. You know, wars end and scars don't go away, limbs don't grow back. Uh, the nightmares you've seen on the battlefield don't disappear just because hostilities ended. You know, guys and gals carry these things for life. We want to be able to help them, not, not give them a handout. We want to empower them to uh, be successful. Uh, you know, they fought for this country and a lot of people out there are reaping the rewards of the American dream. Uh, that has been empowered or has been enabled by the sacrifice of so many of our military members. Due to the company's growth, the name was changed to Combat Wounded Coalition. With so many issues following soldiers home, the former Navy SEAL has dedicated his life to helping them in the transition. Now we've got all these current generation of warriors that are coming home and they're struggling to find jobs. There's, you know, there's, some of them are homeless, and you know, we've got an astronomical rate of, of suicides, almost 8,000 suicides a year, um, which is just unacceptable. So how can we fix that? In our opinion, it's helping them find purpose and peace, and that is uh, the new goal and mission in a combat wounded coalition. As the company's spokesman and motivational speaker, Redmond is front and center, helping the combat wounded. After 37 surgeries from his own wounds, his recovery continues. And while his military mission may have changed, the idea is the same, helping fellow veterans on the battlefield. This time, it's the battlefield called life.
you know, life doesn't always go according to plan. As a matter of fact, I mean, it, it very rarely does it ever go according to plan. Uh, in life, we're all going to encounter catastrophic events, some small, some big. Um, and it's how you handle these events. Um, you know, one of the slogans that I came up with shortly after I was wounded is, the mark of any man or organization is not found in their past, but how they overcome adversity and shape their future. So, I mean, that, that is what I'd like to see 20 or 30 years from now, a long-term sustaining organization that's making a difference in the lives of our combat veterans. Jason Redman, that's, wow. that's a hero right Isn't there. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? But again, takes a trial and makes it into this incredible victory. A huge trial. Can you imagine, oh. as he says, going through these airports and people constantly staring and he just, you know, it was from there he said, you know what, I don't need this anymore and really just went out and did something positive to help so many of these veterans who really are struggling oh, yeah. in, in so many ways. Well, I mean, the suicides and the death. And so one of the things it brought me back to is there's a really interesting theory um, called the theory of flow. It's the psychology of optimal experience. And what uh, oops, Csikszentmihalyi is the guy who invented this this theory. And the idea is all you need is a challenge. In order to get into optimal life, you just need to be challenged. Hmm. And it doesn't matter what challenge happens. If you have a challenge and you make a plan and you, that you can do and you live the plan, you end up feeling more optimal and more hope and more happy. Because you overcame mm-hmm. the trial and were able and, to do something positive. And, and so what, in his research, he even found that it doesn't matter if you wanted the trial. So having a, a bomb go off and take your face off – automatically creates the opportunity for optimal experience. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he says is, contrary to what we usually believe, happiness, these happy moments, are not passive, receptive, relaxing times, although such experiences can also be enjoyable. The best moments usually occur when a person's body or mind is stretched to its limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something that is difficult or worthwhile. That totally sums this up, doesn't it? Exactly. exactly. Optimal experience. And if comes he hadn't had that. that experience on the on the battlefield, uh-huh. this probably never would have right. come to fruition. No. And, and he wouldn't how many have reached this level. Exactly. And yet, can you imagine that moment of just your gut dropping when you think, "Look at my face." Yeah. Who is that guy? Can you, I can just picture him in that CT scan and and, and uh, seeing himself for the first time. That yeah. would be very frightening. Uh-huh. And just the the you know thirty seven surgeries and and still has more to come. And he has a wife and and two children and amazing. And just gosh, doing so many great things for other people who are struggling as well. I mean, that's what life's all oh, about, yeah. right? And he still probably has to do it every day. Yep. Every day we've got to go accept the challenge mm-hmm. again, make the plan for the day, and do something with it. Oh, excellent story, Kathy. Well done. You did it again. See, folks, seeing the good in the world. That is the purpose of this show. There are role models out there. They're right next door to you. And again, it doesn't. you don't need a war injury to, to be that type of role model. You could be the mom that's just making it work, the dad that uh, was just unemployed and finding a new opportunity. Hope you're feeling the spirit of it all, folks. It's all good, and it's all uh, yours if you'll just reach for it. We'll take a break. Come back another whole hour next hour right here on The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. And happy Junk Food Day. July 21st, Junk Food Day. 
Officially today, too, I believe, is the day that they landed on the moon. I'm pretty sure. 21st. And junk food day. Bada boom, bada bing. The perfect combination. Space flight and junk food. We like to we like to celebrate all things good. And, of course, junk food would, would be the top of the list. Sure, it's greasier. It's naughty. You're not supposed to eat it. But, man, it makes you feel good for about four minutes. Then you have the crash. So we're celebrating all things junk foodie today. Also, in a few minutes, we're going to be talking with um, the author of the book, No More Perfect Kids, Love Your Kids uh, for Who They Are. We're going to try to blow up the perfection infection, which a lot of us parents have, where we want to try to make our kids perfect, and we put a lot of pressure on them. So if you tend to be parenting with a perfection infection, um, we are going to, we're going to help cure you of that. So stick with us. But before we move on, let's go to Kathy and find out what's going on in the headlines. Ohio Governor John Kasich is scheduled to announce today he's running for president, the 16th Republican to enter the race. The announcement is scheduled to take place at Ohio State University. Kasich was chairman of the House Budget Committee and successfully balanced the federal budget during Bill Clinton's presidency. The latest polls have Kasich at just 2% of the Republican support. Ohio, Iowa's top newspaper is calling on Donald Trump to quit his run for president. Uh, This after Trump's controversial comments about John McCain's time as a POW during the Vietnam War. The Des Moines Register said Trump is polluting the political waters and keeping qualified candidates from getting their message out. Here is fellow GOP presidential candidate Lindsey Graham. You shouldn't be our commander-in-chief because you don't know our military. John McCain and everybody like him is an American hero. One national poll has Trump ahead 11 points in the GOP race. However, that was before his comments about McCain. Trump has a campaign event scheduled for this morning in South Carolina. FBI agents searched a Tennessee apartment yesterday trying to determine whether or not two acquaintances of the Chattanooga shooter knew he had plans to carry out the deadly attack. 24-year-old Mohammed Abdulaziz opened fire at a military recruiting station last week, killing four Marines and a sailor. Meanwhile, the U.S. military has reportedly directed recruiting stations across the country to step up security measures, and six states have ordered their guardsmen at National Guard recruitment centers to be armed. In the wake of the attack, the U.S. Capitol is flying the flag at half-mast. President Obama, however, has yet to order the flag lowered at the White House. Extreme heat across the southern plains to the east coast will impact millions today. The dangerous temperatures have caused power outages and travel delays. More than 20,000 people lost power in parts of New York City yesterday, and power lines in Brooklyn caught fire, mostly due to a large surge in demand for electricity. And Matt, did you watch it yesterday? 39-year-old American Zach Johnson winning the British Open in a four-hole playoff. That was his second major victory. He also won the Masters back in 2007. But it's interesting because uh, what's the name of the other guy? Jordan Spieth? Spieth, man. They're young punks. Yeah, he had a shot. Yeah. And he was at it again. Yeah, he he almost became the first man since Ben Hogan to win the first three. Uh, of the major tournaments in a year. Yeah. Wow. That was a bummer. I was kind of hoping for that. Yeah. I mean, that is a, a an cool incredible thing. record. That sure. would have been amazing. But I love I, I love to watch Zach Johnson. He seems, he's a really humble guy, so it's kind of nice to see him win. Are you a big golfer? Um, You know, I've just got such a bad back. I don't golf a whole lot, but I do enjoy it. Do I you? do enjoy it. I don't particularly enjoy watching the British Open. It's not the most beautiful kind yeah, of a course. It's not a pretty course. And those bunkers are just impossible. <laughs> I mean, you and I would be in there for days. You know what? You, I would probably die there. <laughs> And I would for sure be in there. 
The bunkers, once you're in, unless you're really good, oh, it's hard to get out. That of. one, I think it was and the first especially. day at Mickelson. I can't remember how many times it took him to get out. It was, it's just crazy. I those mean, things are that's so deep. Phil Mickelson. If yeah. Phil Mickelson can't get out of the bunker, and that's his strength, is that kind of the shorter game, getting out, like yeah. the pitching? Yeah. You no. know, I used to work at a, I used to work the Greens mm-hmm. at a country club here in Utah, and we, I'm telling you. Working the greens, meaning meaning I actually I I mowed them, I changed the tees, I did everything. But um, I would also you know play tricks on the (laughs) golfers because there was a blind hole where they would just shoot the they'd hit the ball down and it would land on the green and they'd immediately go walk to the the cup if they didn't see their ball on the green. So we would always go um, run out on the green as we were raking out the traps. We'd run out on the green, put the ball in the cup, and then run back. Oh, and we did it uh, many, many times. In fact, Jim Nance came by. Oh, yeah. Did it. So if we, if we didn't put it in the cup, sometimes we would actually just step on the ball and indent it into the green. And if they don't come up and clean up their ball, uh-huh. then they'll, next time they putt it, it'll be horrible putt. Oh, it was really it was it was So how did you decide where to put the hole? Were you told? Uh we were told. Okay. The the greenskeeper would go out and mark okay. where the holes are going. And okay. that's a real that's an art in and of itself. So I'm surprised after that you're not a scratch golfer. Yeah, no. Um <laughs> <laughs> I ended up it was a lot of work. Yeah. So they don't You didn't the, get to play the game. We, they just, let us yeah. play once a week. But you've been on the course all day, so you're like sick of it. So yeah, the last I, thing you wanted to do was yeah. go back and, and play. And on my day off, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't yeah. want to go back and play. Yeah. But I, I don't want to brag. But I'm pretty good. <laughs> I'm pretty good. What is good? Uh, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> it's not that good. By the way, that's the first time I've seen a a, a seagull, which is Utah yeah. State bird, uh-huh. killed on a driving range. That? A lady oh. tees up. Hits the ball on a driving range. Seagull kind of swings down to eat it. (laughs) And by the way, that bird ate it. And she killed a seagull. Really? Well, she didn't kill it. She wounded it. Uh Uh-huh. And then she called me over and like, this bird's still alive. You need to do something with it. What did you do? I'm like, what the heck do you do with that? In my head, I'm like, that's illegal. You can't. That's like killing an eagle. Yeah. So what did you do? It's a seagull. I just carried it over to the river. And... I don't want to talk about it after oh, that. Yeah. After that, now it's an offense. Now it's a legal issue. Yeah, we better stop there then. But apparently the bird just died. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But I, that's where I learned. That's why I, I saw Jim Nance doing it. Man, it was big league. Big league. But uh, you got to love golf. And to have these two young bucks in there fighting for it, it's cool. We've got you know the next generations kicking in. Good stuff, folks. Um, and it's hard. Imagine raising a golfer. Would you want your golfer to be perfect? That's one of the things we're talking about. Uh, Jill Savage will be joining us. She's one of the co-authors of the book, No More Perfect Kids. Love your kids for who they are. Do you have a tendency to be a perfectionist parent? We're going to rid you of the infection of perfection and uh, give you some tools for how to let go of putting that pressure on your children so they don't feel like they have to be perfect. It's a hard thing to watch out for. A lot of kids are driven crazy by parents who are pushing for perfection. We'll take a break. Stick with us. We'll come back and discuss it up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, we love our kids. We want them to be the best that they can be. So sometimes uh, 
whether intentionally or not, we may push on them the concept of perfect. They need to be perfect. And uh, our next guest has actually written a book on it, and the book is here to help us basically blow up the perfection infection so that we can just simply love our kids for who they are. Man, if we could rid uh, uh, rid this concept and the stress that comes from people needing to be perfect, um, try hard, do the best you can, but recognize that perfection's not the goal here. Maybe just progress is. Our guest is uh, Jill Savage. She's the co-author of the book, No More Perfect Kids, Love Your Kids for Who They Are. Jill, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Love uh, this topic of the book because sometimes... Whether we mean to or not, we, we, we seriously push the perfection infection. We infect our kids with it. We do, and we really, you know, often don't realize it. Maybe it even happened in us. Yeah. You know, maybe when we were kids, uh, we brought home a report card, and it had three A's and two B's on it. <laughs> and and uh, instead of getting a pat on the back for those A's, we got, so how come these B's aren't A's? Right. And in that moment, without realizing it, we became infected with the perfection infection. We learned that uh, good isn't good enough. And so then, uh, of course, you know, you can look at that and say, you know, we're trying to inspire our kids. Yes, but there are ways to do that uh, without putting some unrealistic expectations oh, on them. It's so true. And then when you think about it down the road, other issues uh, bulimia, anorexia that could be attributed to this need to be perfect, the stress of it all. Eventually, I, there's cheating. There's so many things that can go on just in order to be the best. Yeah, there really is. And sometimes our kids kind of come pre-wired towards yeah, that. you bet. You know, based upon their temperament, based upon their personality, um, they they already are pre-wired to do that. And sometimes it, uh, we can instill that in them. Uh, so I think we have to understand both angles of that. You know, I think that um, uh, I, I know when, when I was uh, growing up, my um, you know, I was kind of pre-wired for perfectionism, yeah. and uh, it's part of my type A driven personality. Um, but what also happens is, um, you know, uh, my parents probably uh, further drove that into me because they very much affirmed um, results, those results. And um, and I think when you've got a kid that's kind of wired like that, you've got to re- affirm effort. And um, that helps to keep that from going down that perfection yeah. road. Well, and because and the results sometimes are, are easier and, and more beneficial, except eventually in a marriage, sometimes we can't, there's certain things you can't measure anymore. Or in life, there's certain things that matter that are really hard to measure, like being nice. It's a hard thing to measure niceness, yet we can measure your grades, but you can get your grades at the expense of being nice. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's integrity. Yeah. You know, integrity is another one. That's when you when you get the whole cheating thing in there because you've just got to get the grade. Um, What a difference that that, um, you know, if you're doing that to the uh, neglect of character, 
uh, boy, that's when there should be some red flags. You bet. Talk about, um, you you call it the perfection infection. And so whether we're kind of born with the disposition of it, I mean, sometimes just people that are of faith, they, you know, there's a, they may have a scripture, be therefore perfect. So, oh, geez, now I got to be perfect. I mean, it, it could even be pushed as a, as a religious ideal. Um, how, how does this perfection infection spread? Well, you know what? It starts, we have to really look at how it starts in us first yeah. and uh, as parents. We, and part of it comes from our culture. We are surrounded by images of perfection. Uh, all you have to do is walk through the checkout line of the grocery That's store. Right. And you look at the covers of the magazines and you see images of perfect living rooms and perfect bodies and perfect families. And you see headlines. You know, as a mother, I would see a headline that would say, body after baby, three months, you know, <laughs> picture, you know, have a picture of this beautiful, yeah. uh, you know, celebrity who doesn't look like she had a baby three months ago. And I look down at mine and go, body after baby, three years. This That's doesn't right. even look the same, you know. And so we, um, without realizing it, we easily compare ourselves to others. And um, when those images of of perfection, they actually set up unrealistic expectations. So what I have found that the perfection infection is, is it is having unrealistic expectations of ourselves and unfairly comparing ourselves to others. Mm. And then if we have that going on inside our head and our heart, which we easily do just simply because of what we're surrounded by, I mean, this is particularly now we're the Pinterest generation. Yeah, totally. Everything's a picture now. Right. And so then without realizing it, it can, that perfection infection can leak right into our parenting. Mm. And suddenly we can have unrealistic expectations of our kids and we can unfairly compare our kids to other kids. Maybe their sibling, maybe the neighbor kids, maybe somebody at church. But without realizing it, we can easily do that, and we become very concerned about what people think. Yeah. And that imposes that our kids have to be perfect. Oh. And boy, all, all of a sudden, you are in a perfect storm. And that's ultimately what I saw in my own life, which is um, really why eventually I wrote No More Perfect Kids, because... I began to deal with the perfection infection in my own parenting and saw that begin to change my relationship with my children for the better. Yeah. What are some of the antidotes? What are some of the the things we can we can use to kind of maybe soften it or or you know to start to affect it? Well, um, I've identified four antidotes and those are they they're easy to remember because they spell out the word clap. Okay. E L A P which is uh, our kids need us to be the ones that are clapping for them, you know, that we're encouraging them. So the C is compassion. And uh, c- compassion uh, out of, in my journey was something that honestly I have learned recently. I would describe myself in my first years of parenting as a buck-up mom. <laughs> buck up. Just Life buck up. Sometimes hard. Yeah. Move on. You know, pick yourself up, uh, dust yourself off and move forward. And, you know, there is a time and a place for that. 
But honestly, I had very little compassion. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, if my kids literally, like, they were toddlers and they fell and, and, you know, scraped their knee, I was the first to scoop them up Mm -hmm. and love on them and give it a kiss and all of that. But I'm talking as they got a little older and and life got a little harder and relationships more complicated, then suddenly, um, you know, my default answer was to buck up. And um, I've become aware of of our need to be compassionate because what I've learned is buck-up parents try to fix, compassionate parents feel. Mm. And um, my kids need me to feel with them. Uh, Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Yeah. And that's just a reminder that that goes for parenting as well. Compassion is a choice. It builds a bridge between you and the person who is hurting. And so compassion is an important antidote. It's beautiful and and Um, essential, right? And ironically, I mean, it's the the first one. So it's going to set the mood, set the tone. It really is. It really is. You're right. And then the L is love. Um, First uh, Corinthians 16, 14 says, let all that you do be done in love. And, um, you know, most of us would say, gosh, I love my kids. But what I'm talking about here is um, the actions that we have towards them when they don't do what we want them to do. <laughs> yep. And if we're really honest, sometimes for most of us, our love is conditional and not unconditional. And, um, and so we really have to learn how to um, be careful with our tongue. Uh, because sometimes, especially in frustration and anger, we can easily lash out. Um, we have to learn how to, to um, respond rather than react. And when we can do that, then our kids truly feel loved, even when they make mistakes. Yeah. So that's the uh, is compassion, L is love. Other and, than rejection, because they could feel just rejected by you. Yes, they absolutely Instead could. of love, and, and then, then all of a sudden they know that it is about what they've—it's about— you really love them conditionally yes. when they get the results you wanted. You know, my co-author is Dr. Kathy Cook, and uh, she once had a child that actually said to her, I wish I felt my parents loved me. I only feel like they love me when I do what, I, what they want me to do. Mm. And I think that speaks volume. Yeah. I think those parents probably would say, of course my kid knows that I love them. But we're talking about how are your actions when they don't make a good choice? How are your actions when they make a mistake? Um, how are your actions when they don't follow your instructions? And, uh, you know, can you still give them direction, uh, even administer a consequence if necessary, but to do it in a loving way? Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, the A is yeah. acceptance. And uh, it's important for us to uh, to learn how to be more accepting of our kids because our kids long to belong, and uh, they need to know that uh, that we approve of them, we accept them for who they are. And um, this is hard because a lot of times, um, you know, we feel like um, our kids are a extension of us, and it makes it hard to accept them. Let's say you've got a child, and they just, they dress very uh, organically, you know, (laughs) not not immodestly, but, you know, you just don't feel like they're a good representation of you. 
Yeah, you want them. Yeah, you want them cleaner, and you want to. Like I have, I have kids. I want to shower. I want them to shower every day. <laughs> every day, I want that shower. Right, or you want them <laughs> to, you know, wear. Like I have a daughter who's an artist. Okay, she has always dressed to the beat of a different drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, she wears things that clash. And honestly, she, you know, she can pull it off. I could never do that. But, um, you know, sometimes, I, to be really honest, I haven't been really accepting of that. Yeah. And so I've really had to learn how to be more accepting. Now, here's the deal. Accept, exception, accepting does not mean agreeing with. Yeah. And that's really important for us to understand. So um, there may be things that your kids choose to do, even as your children become a young adults and adults. You know, uh, we're talking about the concepts from um, No More Perfect Kids and even these uh, antidotes. You can apply no matter the age of your kids. Oh, yeah. Whether they're 2 or 22 or 42. And your grandkids as well. You know yeah. what? Let's do this, Jill. Let's take a break before you get to that final, the, the P in the clap metaphor. We're talking again with Jill Savage, author of No More Perfect Kids. Love your kids for who they are. She's teaching us just some some very basic rules about how to create more compassion, more love, more acceptance. The antidotes to the perfection infection. Uh, Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. More from Jill Savage after the break. Welcome back, friends. To the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, we all love our kids, right? We want what's best for them. Oh, we want them to even have more than we had. And sometimes all of that, plus a little bit of our disposition, maybe a little bit of our own anxieties or what have you, it might push us to be perfectionistic parents. And we might actually, intentionally or unintentionally, be pushing the infection of perfection upon our children, stressing them out, uh, and maybe actually turning them off of you and, you know, life, if we're not careful. Joining us on the phone is Jill Savage, co-author of the book, No More Perfect Kids. Love your kids for who they are. And she's walking us through four antidotes, four tools that we can use to make sure that we, uh, we can, we are actually, you know, getting rid of some of this perfection infection. Jill, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You bet. And you've, you've taught us so far that we as parents need to be clapping for our, our children. And clap is a metaphor for fourth antidotes that we need to work on. Compassion, uh, love, mm-hmm. acceptance, mm-hmm. and what would the P be? The P is perception. Mm. Uh, Proverbs 4.25 says, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Now, I really have uh, come to understand that my tendency with my children, particularly because I had a house full of them, I had five of them, uh, my tendency was to parent by herd. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I would herd them all to the grocery store. I would herd us all to church. I just I needed to herd us all into the car. And when I did that, I wasn't fixing my gaze directly before me on them as individuals. 
and I wasn't tuned in and perceptive about what was going on inside their head and their heart. Yeah. And so that's really what the antidote of perception does. It, it allows you to look beneath the surface and to actually read the cues that your child is sending. Uh, it, it allows you to move from surface um, parenting to deep, intuitive parenting. Yeah, that's and beautiful. That really has made a difference when my kids feel like I'm seeing them as the individuals that they are. Well, yeah, and then then you can be more open to uh, other information, to other variables, other metrics that may not always be so obvious. Right, right. And, um, you know, that's uh, we have a, um, a couple of our kids have dealt with depression. Um, we have one child that has some pretty severe mental health issues. Um, uh, he was adopted. We adopted him when he was nine, and he has really struggled with those. And um, perception, I'll, I'll be honest with you, my husband was more perceptive than I was. Yeah. And so I've kind of had to learn to um, be more discerning, be a little bit more tuned in. I'm kind of a, well, if there's something wrong, they'll tell me. Mm-hmm. And um, that wasn't really working, if I'm really honest with myself. And um, so I had to, to learn how to look beneath and dig a little more and tune into them uh, a little more individually. And what a difference that has made uh, to uh, really take my relationship with my beautiful, imperfectly, imp- yeah. imp- perfectly imperfect children. <laughs> but it also seems like that's by doing it that way, then all of a sudden they realize that there's this sense with mom that she she does pay attention, she does know, she wants us to be our best, but she's also good with who we are. Yeah, there really is. And here's the deal. I think that in dealing with the perfection infection in our life, as well as our children's lives, we have to, I think our goal is not to be perfect or to expect them to be perfect, but it is to... Um, Replace being perfect with being perfected. Mm. And uh, we need that in our lives. We need to embrace that we are being perfected. God does his best work through the cracks in our lives, if we'll let him. And in our children's lives, um, he is perfecting them through their mistakes, through the when they experience consequences of maybe poor choices. That is a perfecting process. Yeah. And we need to stop seeing that as a bad thing that represents us poorly, but instead to see it as a good thing because we are becoming uh, stronger, more mature. And ultimately, if we can learn to handle those tough seasons of life or those tough situations, if we can handle them God's way, then he's perfecting us to become more like Christ. Boy, what a powerful lesson when you think about it. And and then as you can do that and settle in being okay and, and good with everybody having cracks, then, then your children can accept their cracks and see them as opportunities. You're exactly right. And here's what I learned. When I began to embrace God's perfecting work in my own life, I stopped worrying about what people thought. Yeah. And when I stopped worrying about what people thought, I stopped being a controlling parent. And when I stopped being a controlling parent, I increased my ability to influence each of my kids by using the perfection infection antidotes of compassion, love, acceptance, and perception. That's cool. And leaving perfection infection parenting behind resulted in a freedom and contentment in my relationships 
with my beautifully created, perfectly imperfect children. <laughs> it's such a perfect, it's a perfect statement. Perfectly imperfect, <laughs> which is, and as soon as you're so okay with that, it's all, it seems like that's when it all begins. Yes, that is exactly right. It really is. Yeah. Because then they can be real with you. They can be honest with you. Um, you are, they, they know that, they're, that your expectations aren't off the charts. Uh, they uh, they know that you know that they're in process, mm. and that um, progress is the goal, not perfection. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I didn't get serious about perfection infection parenting until my kids um, were ages twelve to twenty five. <laughs> Which yeah, it's interesting because yeah, in a way, it's a little harder. That that's the harder stage, right? Because it is. They've got they've all got their own ideas, their own they attitudes. Really do. So, you know, oftentimes parents are like, well, gosh, I screwed it up in the early years. Guess what? You, it is never, ever too late to deal with perfection infection parenting, yeah. even with your kids or adults. And, um, you know, to, to look at, have I unfairly compared this child to their sibling, to someone else, to someone more successful, to someone who gets better grades or who got more scholarships? Um, have I had expectations of them that have been unrealistic? And so I think no matter the age of our kids, those are two questions that uh, I I really ask parents to consider. And then if you can answer, yes, I have had some pretty unrealistic expectations and I've unfairly compared them, guess what? Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Take over now. You can change it now, That's and great. you can begin to apply compassion and love and acceptance and perception. Well done, Jill, and I appreciate it. And just everything, it, it, it makes it so it's something that is conquerable. Again, the book is No More Perfect Kids. Love your kids for who they are. You can find the book at nomoreperfect.com, nomoreperfect.com. Jill Savage, so appreciate you joining us. We'll take a break, my friends. We're going to go... Uh, We're going to go check in on our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're leading into BYU Sports Nation, uh, our little chat with our good buddies down there, with their favorite song uh, from Death Cab for Cutie. By the way, uh, a band I've never heard of until I talked to my buddies. Hello, John Oman. Tell me that's not a great song. It's a great song. Where have I been? I, I've i never heard of Death Cab for Cuties. I mean, I've heard of Death Cab for Uglies. Ho- totally yeah, different thing. Just singular cutie. Yeah. Oh, yes. cutie. Yeah, cutie. Death singular. Cab for Cutie. Uh-huh. In fact, I'm on their Wikipedia page right now. They're, they've been around for quite a while. Are you learning all about the Postal Service as well? I haven't, I haven't looked them up. Have you heard of up. the Postal Service? Uh, yeah. In fact, I went there yesterday to drop nice. off a package. Nice. <laughs> so the, the Postal lead singer Service. for Death Cab for Cutie... Mm-hmm. Uh, was sent some music from some other person, and he sang to it, and then they became this like this hit. This and hit. They had, they had never been in the same room together. Yeah, they would mail things back and forth to each other. 
Now, now, why do you guys love? Why do you love Death Cab for Cutie so much? Enlighten Listen us. to him. I mean, I, mean, I don't I, know. I hear it and I feel something. Wow, that's cool. Hey, speaking of feeling something, um, did you know that? Uh, have you guys ever heard of Doritos Roulette chips? No. no. Doritos has a, a brand of chips called Roulette. And um, it's actually a brand that seems to be quickly fading, but it's they, they it's no longer it's no longer allowed in the United States. Uh, it's still sold in Canada. It was sold in the UK, but it has now been banned. But what it is is it's 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 just Dorito chips. But every once in a while, they flavor one of them with a really spicy flavoring that's about ten times stronger than or hotter than jalapeno. Wow. And, you know, these kids eat them, and then, boom, the surprise, and then all of a sudden they feel something, like Jerem Jordan when he's listening to Death Cab for Cutie. You eat it, and then you feel something, then and about 10 minutes later. Yeah. But apparently uh, it, it made one person stop breathing. Well, then. That's so not, typically that's not uh, It's not what you're looking for. FDA approved, right? <laughs> typically we want our food to keep us breathing. <laughs> Yeah, you know, correct. I don't want to be old fashioned. G- generally yeah. speaking, yeah. In the old world, in fact, uh, a Dorito spokesperson said, "You know, we are sorry to hear what happened about this boy, this yeah, this person in the UK, um, but you know, we we expect people to seriously to have a really strong experience. But we do say on the pack that it's a very very spicy experience, and they also added, we don't recommend this product for young children." So they that actually they have Doritos for adults. <laughs> My two year old eats Doritos now. She loves yeah. chips. Well, you got to try this roulette kind. No, probably not. <laughs> probably not. But um, by the way, roulette is. Uh, we brought that up today because today happens to be junk food day. Happy junk That's food. Day. Every day in America. No, it's not. Do you remember what the last five days have been? Yesterday was lollipop day. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Uh, we Before had, that was Peach Ice Cream Day, right? Peach Ice Cream Day. One was Sugar Cookie Day. Sugar Cookie Day for sure. Sugar Cookie Day. Um, and then I th- I think that's oh uh, Gummy Bear Day. Gummy wasn't it Gummy Worm Day? Uh, gummy Worm Day. It was. How dare you? I know. I know. <laughs> but see, so you're trying. You're alluding to what? the fact that every one of those days is a junk food day. Yes, you clearly have the sweets calendar. No. You're trying to find out where our calendar's coming from. No, you are incorrect. We Again, have. I've been watching too much Sherlock. I'm trying to use deduction no. to figure out. You're where not going to figure heck this you're out. Getting this from this is this is the national calendar. This is this is the calendar that the president wakes up to and looks at. It's the presidential calendar. Well, no wonder things are going the way they're going in the United but States. He's in great shape, so we know it's not junk food. Even though today <laughs> is Happy Junk Food Day. You guys, it's sad. Hey, uh, are you doing your thing? You know that thing that you do after our show ends? The Story Trek? Yeah, are you guys doing your Story Trek show still? We're taking over the Story Trek in American Red. You really? <laughs> we're, the new, we're the new host of those two shows. You'd be fantastic. Correct. I mean, they, they don't need hey, another host. Be, no, okay. But cool, next one. Are you, are, are you doing your show today? Um, your other show, uh, the BYU Sports Nation show? I Again, we're at the point where I still haven't decided... I kind of like the last-minute decision. You've only got 10 minutes, nine and a half minutes. That's an eternity in broadcast. <laughs> but I, I, I'm sure you guys have prepared a show just in case. Or do yeah, you just wing it? I mean, it? we have. 
we have prepared something in case at 9.59.59 we decide, okay, we're going to do it. <laughs> Let's do it, boys. Yes. Yeah. We, we have what, come prepared. What, what is your, what's your hypothetical show if you have to do one? If we decide to do the show, yeah. there is this letter written to Bronco Mendenhall in an open forum by one of his former players, Harvey Jackson, who was a non-LDS African-American athlete out of Houston, Texas. He went to Nebraska for his first three, four seasons, he redshirted. Then as a graduate student, there is this growing trend in college football where if you have a year of eligibility left, you can go to a new school in a graduate program and become immediately eligible to play there. Harvey was one of those players, one of three last year for BYU, that opted to come to Provo and finish out his football playing career. He wrote a letter to Bronco yesterday summarizing his feelings about that season. Oh, wow. And it was an outlier. Was it? A lot of people look at last season and naturally think another 8-5 and five season. Aye, aye, aye. Yeah. Disappointment. Yeah. And there was clamoring for Bronco Mendenhall to be on the hot seat by fans. And it just it's what comes with the territory of, and what BYU fans would call, mediocrity. Sure. Third consecutive eight and five season. Well, Harvey has a brand new take on this and essentially calls it a success, but not just for the wins and losses, but because of the journey that he experienced. And he says, and I'll, and I'll read you a short yeah, quote. Yeah. BYU is no ordinary place. <laughs> Every time I sit back and replay my senior season as a collegiate football player, I couldn't be more proud of the fact that I chose to play for Coach Bronco Menden. Wow. He also calls him a great man and a real-life inspiration figure. That is cool. That is really cool. So it's a feel-good for sure. Yeah. But we're going to go into the details of this and kind of pull out some abstract ideas from this letter See? and how it can be used oh. as a recruiting tool for BYU athletes that are like Harvey. Yeah. I love that because I we get to see Bronco a little different than you guys do because he comes on our show, but we don't talk sports with him. Right. And— and by the way, his wife, Holly, is going to be a contributor on our show, appearing regularly. Yeah, you told us that. When's that start? That starts in about two weeks. She's going to be the bomb. Your show is about to go next level. I'm telling you, but what I, I, <laughs> I was wondering when Jerem was going to kick in. That's it. <laughs> Jared Good to have was you being back. effective while I was telling the story. Good to have you back, Jared. Watching a video on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, you, that was great sound effects. But I, I, <laughs> but I love it because I, I already see that side of Bronco, and nobody else kind of likes it because they want they're all, you're all talking sports. But to me, that is that is way cool for Bronco. That's got to feel so good because that's really deep in his heart. What matters to him? Uh, he's very personable, and he's very affected by. These kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And he tries to affect people in the same way. Yeah. It, he sent out a, a letter um, to each of the former players who showed up at BYU Football Media Day, thanking them for coming and hoping that they would continue to visit. Now, last summer there was a lot of drama related to this. Um, Jason Buck, a former player, saying, you know, on the radio, um, some comments about, you know, hey, yeah. to, the, to the point of Bronco doesn't, uh, you know, embrace former players and not involved, blah, blah, blah. It seems that Bronco has uh, heard that message and taken care He's of learning those people. That, yeah. yeah, yeah. So if cool. if someone has an issue with something you're doing and you and you agree, then you and you change. There's progress. Yeah. And so a guy like Harvey Jackson, not a member of the church, African American, um, 
comes to BYU, has a great experience. That's fantastic that for him, awesome. yeah. for BYU, for Bronco, for everybody. And for the whole program where you can keep bringing in these grad students. I yeah. mean, it's, it, Are it, you it, acting like you're tired of that school? <laughs> that's Act right. like you're going to get a master's degree and come to BYU and play football. Pretend with us. Yeah, I, I want to know, how, like, did Jordan Leslie actually finish the master's? Did Harvey A. Jackson actually finish? It doesn't even matter. Doesn't Just matter. make tackles, catch the ball, that's block. Right. See? Man, great stuff. You guys, again, your show. It's one we have to listen to. When would we listen to it? How about in five minutes? Oh, yeah. What a great tease. Let's do this, Leroy Jenkins. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's Matt Townsend. Have you looked up Leroy Jenkins, You need Matt? to watch no. That's your new that my next assignment. Thing? You guys I'm, always give I'm me sending, assignments. Just look up Leroy Jenkins. Okay. I'm sending you the link. Leroy this Jenkins. YouTube well, gold. Terry sh- Terry's telling me he showed me that, and I don't remember it. You need to watch it again, then. Oh, you'd, you'd know. Okay. You'd know okay. if you had seen Leroy Jenkins. Okay. Oh, is is he is he the one that's the singer? No, it's not him. I'm sending you the oh, link. Oh, no, is- the video game. No, I've seen that. <laughs> I've seen that. Okay, no, Leroy Jenkins. I'm taking it again anyway. I'm going to go see it again. Okay, well, i got to let you guys go. you got to show it. We got okay. stuff to do. Have a good one, guys. Take care. <laughs> Jerem is out of control. You know what? See, that's why you can't give the boy sugar. You give that boy sugar. And he lights up like that. Isn't it funny? Like out of nowhere, he just he'll just start singing a song. Ben, why don't you do that? Ben, make a note. You need to sing more songs. Starting when? Tomorrow. Okay. Just jump in and just sing a little melody. Hey, we always like to end the show on a hero story. Here's a quick one for you. Eighty-four-year-old woman from Jacksonville, Florida, uh, basically saved an entire apartment complex because she got up for morning prayers. It was about 2 a.m. on an early Wednesday morning when Carmen Rodriguez, 84 of Jacksonville, was awakened and couldn't fall back to sleep. She then busied herself by saying her morning prayers, and in the middle of her prayer, she smelled smoke. She went outside to investigate and saw flames consuming her apartment building. She then began banging on the doors, waking up her neighbors and shouting, Get out! By the time the firefighters had made it onto the scene, all 10 adults and one child that were living in the complex had been evacuated. Rodriguez's daughter, uh, Sol Maria Cabrera, told Florida Times Union that her mother often says prayers when she can't sleep, and this time her prayers managed to save real lives. Powerful stuff, folks. Congratulations to you, uh, Carmen Rodriguez. You're the hero of the day. Also another hero, by the way. Uh, do you remember uh, Americans Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on July 20th in 1969 walked they, they walked on the moon. Today's the day they walked on the moon. Yesterday they landed on the moon. Today they walked on the moon. So powerful, powerful stuff. Buzz, Buzz Aldrin, by the way, wanted uh, to make sure, was it, I think it was Buzz that eventually when he went down, he wanted to make sure that he kept the door unlocked because he didn't want to get locked out on the moon. Uh, Armstrong was the first person to step onto the lunar surface six hours after they landed. So congratulations also, heroes of the day. Folks, that's the show. We'll take a, we'll take a break. Be back tomorrow. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world.